Welcome to the Moses Lake Baptist Church Sermon Podcast. This episode is a message brought to our church by a guest speaker. We hope that it is a blessing to you, and we would love to hear how God has used it in your life. Take your Bible. Let's go to Jeremiah chapter 20, if you will. Jeremiah chapter 20. Look at just one verse in chapter 20 and uh, several in just a moment from this same chapter. But to begin with, Jeremiah 20 and verse 9. Verse 9 of Jeremiah 20, the Bible says, Then I said, I will not make mention of him, nor speak any more in his name. But his word was in mine heart as a burning fire shot up in my bones, and I was weary with forbearing, and I could not stay. No matter how hard man works at it, this world will never be a perfect place. A man works pretty hard at it. Uh, we have uh, doctors, and we have sociologists, and we have psychologists, and we have all kinds of people, environmentalists, that try to make this world a utopia. They try to make this world a place that we can enjoy every aspect of it. But no matter how hard we try, the world will never be a perfect place. Not once was. When God made it, when God created it, he stepped back on that sixth day and he said, God saw everything that he had made and behold, it was very good. So when God created this world, it was perfect. We read a little further in the Bible, we come to chapter 3, and it says the serpent was more subtle than any beast of the field which the Lord God had made. The serpent said unto the woman, hath God said you shall not eat of the fruit of the trees of the garden? The woman said we may eat of the fruit of the trees of the garden, but of the fruit of the tree that's in the midst of the garden, God has said you shall not eat of it, neither shalt thou touch it, lest you die. And the serpent said ye shall not surely die. For God doth know, in the day you eat thereof, then your eyes shall be opened, and ye shall be as gods, knowing good and evil. And when the woman saw that the tree was good for food, and that it was pleasant to the eyes, and a tree to be desired to make one wise, she took of the fruit thereof, and gave also her husband with her, and he did eat. And the eyes of them both were opened, and they knew that they were naked. Adam and Eve disobeyed God. They sinned. In chapter 2, God has said of all the trees in the garden, thou mayest freely eat. But of the fruit of the tree that's in the midst of the garden, God has said you should not eat of it. For in the day that thou eatest thereof, thou shalt surely die. So now Adam and Eve have sinned. And God tells them in Genesis chapter 3 and verse number 17, because thou hast eaten of the fruit of the tree, whereof I commanded thee, saying, thou shouldest not eat of it, curse it is the ground for thy sake. In sorrow shalt thou eat of it all the days of thy life. And we understand tonight from a biblical perspective that all of the destruction and all of the devastation and all of the disease and all of the division and all of the disaster that ever takes place in this world is a result of man's sin. Man sinned. The Bible says the wages of sin is death. And when we look around at our culture today and the world today as it is, it's kind of discouraging, isn't it? I mean, you watch the news and there's just so little positive. 
It just seems like everything, everywhere we turn in this year, 2020, it just seems to end in disaster. We look around today and it, it just seems discouraging when we think about our future, we think about what, what, what may be coming. It kind of reminds me of when I was in college. When I was in college, it was hardly, uh, hardly a day would go by that a, a speaker wouldn't come to chapel and preach about how the United States of America would never make it until July 4th, 1976. We would never see our 200th birthday. We, we, had, we had blown it. We had, we had disobeyed God. We had, we had brought in all this, all this evil, and, and God wasn't going to tolerate it. We were never going to see our 200th birthday. I mean, every speaker that came mentioned it. And there was reason to believe that. I mean, and when I went to school, I, I didn't go to kindergarten. I, I, I grew up in Watertown, Wisconsin. Watertown, Wisconsin is the home of America's first kindergarten. In fact, you can go to Watertown, Wisconsin and see the building today where the first kindergarten uh, was ever conducted. Uh, it's the home of, the world, uh, of America's first kindergarten, uh, uh, 1884. But when I went to school, they didn't have kindergarten. I'm older than you think. And so I went to first grade, second grade, third grade, fourth grade. And in those, those grades, I would go in that classroom, and every morning there was a speaker up in the corner of the classroom. And every morning the principal would come on that speaker. And he'd say, good morning, boys and girls. I hope you're all sitting down at your desk. And he said, I want to read to you from the Bible. And he'd read a verse or two. And they'd say, now, all, all the boys and girls, you need to fold your hands, put them on your desk, fold your hands, bow your head, close your eyes, and I'm going to pray that God will give us a good day. Every morning, first grade, second grade, third grade, fourth grade. Fifth grade was different, because that was 1962. Now, I remember the speaker was still up in the corner, but it was only used for announcements, because the public school had taken prayer and Bible reading out of the public school. And many people looked at that and thought, this is the end. Uh, God's not going to be happy about this. God is going to write us off. We're going to head for judgment. And all through those uh, 60s, that decade of the 60s, it just seemed like there was a culture coming in. The, the rock music culture moved in, and the, and the free sex movement moved in, and the riots began to happen down in Watts, Los Angeles, and, and then at Kent State University, and you had all of this, this turmoil and all this chaos. Inflation was out of control. First car I ever bought, I got a loan, 18.5% interest on that car loan. Seems impossible today. First house my wife never bought, we, we paid 10.5% interest on the loan. I remember the gas shortages. Uh, you couldn't buy gas on Saturday or Sunday. The gas stations were closed. There's a shortage of gas. And I was an evangelist trying to hold revivals. And I held revivals from Sunday to Friday. And, and then we would travel on Saturday. But there were no gas stations open. So I had two 20-gallon tanks of, uh, of gas on my truck. Uh, I carried five five-gallon gas tanks in the back full of gas. I had 60 pounds of propane. I mean, we were a moving bomb. <laughs> Anybody would have hit us, we would have ended the United States of America. And I remember thinking, you know, this will bring people back to God. People will get revived. There'll be a revival because of all this. But, you know, people would shoot each other in those gas lines just to move up one car. It's amazing. 
And I swallowed the Kool-Aid. I mean, I drank the Kool-Aid. I thought, there's no way we're going to make it in this country till July 4th, 1976. Can I encourage you tonight to lift your eyes above the chaos and above the confusion and above the uncertainty and set your affection on things above, not on the things of the earth? Can I encourage you tonight to, to realize that God has said, Thou'll keep him in perfect peace, whose mind is stayed upon thee, because he trusteth in thee. Trust ye in the Lord forever, for the Lord Jehovah is everlasting strength. We need to look to Jesus, who is the author and the finisher of our faith. Now, I want to look at the life of Jeremiah tonight briefly. Because I believe there are three observations from Jeremiah's life that are very similar to our situation today. This was a difficult and, diff and devastating time in the life of the prophet Jeremiah. I want you to notice, first of all, a universal collapse. Now, at the time of Jeremiah chapter 20, Jeremiah is not a young man. He's been around the block a time or two, as we would say. This is not his first rodeo, okay? Jeremiah has lived a long time by the time we come to chapter 20 of Jeremiah. In fact, Jeremiah was alive during the time of Josiah the king. Remember Josiah? He was the boy king. He became king of Israel when he was eight years old. Imagine a president... <laughs> of the United States of America being eight years old. Actually, that, that sounds kind of refreshing, doesn't it? Uh, but, but, but here was this young boy, and he had followed his father, Ammon, and his grandfather, Manasseh, who had led the nation of Israel into all kinds of idolatry and false worship. For 57 years, the nation had turned their back on God and we're building groves and molten images and carved works. And the nation was following and worshiping this false set of gods. So here comes Josiah to the throne. Second Chronicles 34 is a great account of this. And at eight years of age, he becomes king. And while he was yet young, at the age of 16, he began to seek after the God of David, his father. Instead of following the line of his father, Ammon, and his grandfather, Manasseh, David looked to his spiritual roots, and he began to follow after the God of David, his father. When he was 20 years old, he realized we've got to get back to worshiping God, the God of heaven. We've got to assemble together, and we've got to worship. And so he takes some money, and he gives it to some workmen, and they go to repair and amend the house of the Lord. It's in shambles, hasn't been used for 57 years. And so they go and they begin to repair and amend the house of God. And as they were doing so, they found a book. But they didn't know what it was. And so they took it to Shaphan, the scribe. And when Shaphan reads this book, he realizes it's the very word of God. It's the Old Testament Torah. It's the law. And so they take this book and they take it to Josiah and they read the law to Josiah. And when Josiah heard the word of the Lord, the Bible says he rent his clothes, which was symbolic of his humility before God. And he said, this is why we're in trouble. We have, forget, we have forgotten God. We've forsaken his word. So he calls the nation together, the young, the old, the, the men, the women, the children. They all come together and they stood and they read the word of God. 
And after they read it, Josiah declares, now, ladies and gentlemen, this is how I'm going to live. I'm going to live according to this book. And I'm going to lead this nation according to this book. And he caused the people to stand to it. And all the people stood in approval of following God of heaven. And for 31 years under Josiah's reign, Israel experienced one of the greatest revivals on the records of history. Jeremiah watched it all unfold. But Jeremiah also saw the end of Josiah's reign. And to the throne came Jehoahaz, and then Jehoiada, and then Zedekiah. And those next three kings took the nation of Israel right back into the idolatry. And Jeremiah the whole time is saying, stop, wait, stop and think. We've already been there. We've already experienced the judgment of God. Don't go back that direction. And he begins to cry out to the nation, come back to God. In Jeremiah chapter 2 and verse 19, he says, Thy own wickedness shall correct thee. Thy own backsliding shall reprove thee. Know therefore and see that it is a wicked thing and evil that thou hast forsaken the Lord thy God. In chapter 4 and verse 3, he says, Break up your fallow ground. Take away the foreskins off your heart. Uh, You're uncircumcised in your heart, your ears. They had become desensitized to God. They had turned a deaf ear to God. In chapter 4 and verse 22, he says, my people are foolish. They have, no, they have not known me. They are sottish children. They are wise to do evil, but to do good, they have no knowledge. Does that sound kind of like today? Wise to do evil, but to do good, they have no knowledge. Boy, in America, we're really good at corruption. And we're even better at covering it up. But to do good, we have no knowledge. Chapter 7 and verse 2, Jeremiah says, amend your ways and your doings. In chapter 8, he calls out to the political leaders and the religious leaders, and he says, the wise men are ashamed. They are dismayed and taken. Lo, they've rejected the word of the Lord and what wisdom is in them. In chapter 9 and verse 1, he says, oh, that my head were waters, my eyes a fountain of tears, that I might weep day and night for the slain of the daughter of my people. And now Jeremiah begins to predict this universal collapse. In chapter 13 and verse 19, he predicts the Babylonian captivity. He says, God has been pushed far enough by our wickedness. God has been pushed far enough with our evil. He's going to allow us to be taken captive. In verse, uh, 13, or verse 19 of chapter 13, he says, the cities of the south shall be shut up and none shall open them. Judah shall be carried away captive. It shall be wholly carried away. If you look up at verse uh, 15 of chapter 19, he says, Thus saith the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, Behold, I will bring upon this city and upon all our towns and all the evil that I have pronounced against it, because they have hardened their necks. They might not hear my words. Jeremiah says it's too late. Your corruption, your evil, your wickedness, has turned God against you. And the nation is about to collapse. And Notice how he describes it in verse 4 of chapter 20. Thus saith the Lord, Behold, I will make thee a terror to thyself and to all thy friends, 
and they shall fall by the sword of their enemies, and thine eyes shall behold it. And I'll give all Judah into the hand of the king of Babylon, and he shall carry them captive into Babylon, and shall slay them with a sword. He then details this captivity in verse 5. He says, I'll deliver all the strength of this city, all of your military muscle, all of your defense systems, gone, taken away. He says in verse 5, and all the labors thereof, all your employment, your jobs, your income, gone. Going on in verse 4, he says, and all the precious things thereof, all your culture, your arts, your sports, your entertainment, your recreation, gone. He goes on and says, and all the treasures of the kings of Judah, all your bank accounts, all your financial stability, your retirement, it's gone. A universal collapse. Now, none of this surprises Jeremiah. He has seen it coming. He has watched it come through this cycle. And he's been warning the people. But I want you to see, secondly, tonight, not only a universal collapse, but notice an unrelenting criticism. Jeremiah is not surprised that the nation is going to be taken captive, but he is surprised that he's going to get blamed for it. In fact, look at verse number one of chapter 20. Now Pashur, the son of Emer the priest, who was also chief governor in the house of the Lord, heard that Jeremiah prophesied these things. Then Pashur smote Jeremiah the prophet and put him in the stocks that were in the high gate of Benjamin, which was by the house of the Lord. Pashur, in verse one, is, is identified as a priest. Jeremiah is a prophet. Now, these two offices were different in the Old Testament in what they were assigned to do for God. But in a sense, they were equal in their authority. For example, before God completed the canon of Scripture, he would speak to his people through a priest or through a prophet. Sometimes he would speak through a king, but most often he would give the word of the Lord to the people through a priest or a prophet. So in a sense, these two offices were somewhat equal if you were to look at the, the flow chart of God, if you please. So here's Pashur, this priest, and he hears this message of doom and gloom that Jeremiah is preaching, this, this uh, captivity that he's predicting, and he doesn't like it. So as he comes into the territory of Pashur, he captures Jeremiah, and the Bible says he smote Jeremiah. The word smote there in the Hebrew has the idea of striking with the hand or striking with a rod. So a physical punishment or abuse. Then verse 2 says he puts Jeremiah in the stocks at the high gate of Benjamin. The high gate of Benjamin was the place where people would go in and out of the city. So now here's Jeremiah, this prophet of God. He's been beaten physically. His feet are in stocks. He's a gazing stock to everybody that's going by. They're laughing at him. They're deriding him. He's been defrocked of his office. And by the way, none of this is legal. There were false prophets in the days of Jeremiah. And when someone preached a false message that wasn't thus saith the Lord, they had a way of dealing with that. 
If someone reported a false message to the priest, he would call uh, attention to it to the high priest. The high priest would gather all the priests. They would hear the message and they would determine whether it was of God or not. And if it was not, then that priest was to be removed for preaching a false message. But none of that is done here. All the rules, all the laws are set aside. And Pashur acts on his own and punishes Jeremiah the prophet. And Jeremiah's kind of at a loss here. He's saying, God, what's up with this? I mean, I was just saying, thus saith the Lord. I was just telling him what you told me to preach. And now I'm the one that's being blamed for this captivity. I'm the one that's being blamed for this collapse. Uh, Look down at verse number seven. Jeremiah says, O Lord, thou hast deceived me. And I was deceived. Thou art stronger than I, and hast prevailed. I am in derision daily. Everyone mocketh me. For since I spake, I cried out. I cried violence and spoil, because the word of the Lord was made a reproach unto me, and a derision daily. Jeremiah is saying, wait a minute, God. You, you, you lied to me. You deceived me. I didn't sign up for this. I mean, I, this isn't in my job description. You didn't tell me this was going to happen if I would be faithful to you. You didn't tell me that this would be the result if I, if I simply followed you in obedience. And Jeremiah's like, wait a minute, God. This isn't in the plan here. This isn't how it was supposed to go. This isn't how I envisioned it. And we come to verse 9, and he says, Then I said, I will, make not, I will not make mention of him, nor speak any more in his name. Jeremiah says, I'm done. I'm out. Tear up my contract. I quit. A universal collapse. An unrelenting criticism. But I want you to see thirdly, an underlying condition. Look at verse 9 again. You see, Jeremiah, he did not have the privilege of looking to the New Testament like we do. Jeremiah couldn't read ahead to what Paul said, yea, all who live godly in Christ Jesus shall suffer persecution. Jeremiah couldn't read Peter's words, beloved, think it not strange concerning the fiery trial that shall try you as though some strange thing happened to you. Jeremiah didn't know about that scripture. And the devil thinks if he can bring enough pressure to God's people, he can shut down the message. The devil thinks if he can apply enough pressure to the church, he can stop the truth from going forward. But the devil has a really bad memory. Because look at verse 9. Jeremiah says, I will not make mention of him nor speak any more in his name, period. Now, ladies and gentlemen, I don't know how much time elapses between that period and the next word. Maybe it was just a few seconds. Maybe it was several moments. I personally believe that Jeremiah may have set the pen down, pushed the chair back, got up from the desk where he was writing, and left the room. I personally think there may be a couple of days between that period 
and the next word. I don't know. But I'm glad verse 9 doesn't end with that period. Because somewhere along the line, whether it was a couple of seconds or a couple of minutes or a couple of hours or a couple of days, Jeremiah goes back in the room. He sits down, he slides the chair back up, he picks up the pen and he writes, but his word was in mine heart as a burning fire shut up in my bones. And I was weary with forbearing and I could not stay. You see, ladies and gentlemen, no matter how much pressure the devil can bring into our life, no matter how much he tries to shut down our testimony for Jesus Christ, he forgets that there's something inside of us called the Holy Spirit of God who lives, who indwells in our hearts, in our lives. And greater is he that's in you than he that's in this world. Boy, the devil thought he had it. He had control. He was in charge when they sealed that tomb outside Jerusalem. And those Roman soldiers were placed there to guard that tomb. Boy, the devil was kicking up his heels with glee. He was happy. Now I've stopped him. Now I've shut down this message. But the devil forgot that behind that stone was the very one who had said, I am the resurrection and the life. He that believeth in me, though he were dead, yet shall he live. Oh, the devil was happy one day when they drugged the apostle Paul outside the city and left him for dead. He thought, now we'll hear this babbler no more. We'll not put up with this message any longer. But all of a sudden, that body began to move. And Paul kind of stood up and shook the dust off and said, though I preach the gospel, I have nothing to glory in. But woe is unto me if I preach not the gospel of Jesus Christ. The devil thought he had Peter and John when the authorities said, you will not speak in the name of Jesus Christ ever again. And Peter said, we could not but speak of, of all that we had seen and heard. You see, the devil forgets. Oh, he tries to bring some pressure to us individually. He tries to bring some pressure to the church. Look, the devil is happy when the churches are closed. The devil's happy when the parking lot is empty. He's happy when the chairs are empty. He's happy when there aren't any services. But he forgets that we have something greater in us than he can ever bring against us. God said, I'll build my church and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. We have the Holy Spirit of God living inside of us. And we dare not stop. We dare not quit. We dare not become unfaithful. We must continue on. We must gather together. We must continue to read our Bibles. We must continue to pray and trust God. We must continue to give, and we must continue to serve. Why? Because we have God on our side. And with God, who can be against us? I remember July 4th, 1976, very well. It was a Sunday. And I started a revival that morning. In El Paso, Texas, Sunday school went very well, had a good attendance. They combined the adults and the teenagers together, and I taught a lesson. Morning service, house was full, visitors in attendance, good service, good invitation. The afternoon passed quickly. We had the evening service. Again, a good crowd back. But my heart was heavy. I honestly thought, this is it. This is the last day. We aren't going to make it to midnight. 
Because all I had heard was that America will never make it to its 200th birthday. And I remember when that evening service ended and everybody left, I was staying in a little room there on the property of the church. And after everyone left, I put my Bible in my room and I decided to go for a walk. And I began to walk the streets of El Paso. If you've ever been through there, you know it's a very long city east to west. Skirts along our southern border with Mexico, the great city of Juarez, just on the other side of the border. Not very wide, north and south, but very long. And I began to walk those streets. Today, if you try to cross El Paso east to west, it's going to take you at least an hour in good traffic. It wasn't nearly that large back then. And I began to walk those streets and pray. And I said, Lord, I know we deserve to be destroyed. I know America's turned its back on you. I know that we don't deserve to have another year, another day, another revival, another service. God, we deserve to be destroyed. But Lord, I'm just a young guy. I'm just starting out. Could I have a shot at this? I mean, could you just hold off a little bit so I could preach some revivals? Lord, I... Just been married a couple years. I'd like to maybe have some kids, see if I could raise them up to serve God. Lord, could I have a chance? I just prayed and walked and prayed and walked. The time went by and I looked at my watch. It was 12.05. I thought, hey, it's Monday. It's July 5th. We made it. And then I thought, yeah, but I'm on central time. Maybe God's on mountain time. I better keep walking. I better keep praying. And I walked till 1 o'clock and then 2 o'clock and 3 o'clock and 4 o'clock. And I headed back to that church in that little room. And I remember as I came on the property, the sun was just coming up over that eastern horizon. And I didn't hear a voice. But God said to me, son, you just be faithful every day of your life. And let me take care of the calendar. And ladies and gentlemen, we're still here. Moses Lake Baptist Church is still here. And while the devil would love to shut this place down, the devil would love to discourage your pastor and his family, the devil would love to discourage you, he'd love for us all to just pack it up and quit. But friend, all God asks of us is to be faithful. Every day gives us. He'll take care of the calendar. And may God give us a heart that's burning with the fire of the Holy Spirit to say, I was weary with forbearing, and I could not stay. Oh, if you're thinking, man, it's just so hard. It's just so discouraging. The future looks so bleak. Listen, let's set our affection on things above, not on the things of the earth. Thank you for listening to this message. We hope it's been an encouragement to you. And if you'd like any further information about our church, we'd like to encourage you to visit mlbc.church.